Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week our theme is law and order. Now, something you may or may not know about Metro Connection is those weekly themes we explore, you know, faith, freedom, change, what have you. We pick those topics way in advance. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months. And that was precisely the case with this week's theme. A while back, we got it in our heads to do a show called Law and Order. We figured we would do some stories about law enforcement, maybe law school. But then this happened. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Many, many people injured and those injuries are severe. The FAA has announced a ground stop for Boston Logan Airport until further notice. People were hurt and we just threw them, ran as fast as we could down here to get blood. We're recommending to people that they stay home and that they don't go anyplace and congregate in large crowds. Talk about a a real sense of fear right now for everybody in our city. Those two explosions at the Boston Marathon's finish line on Monday certainly defied the law and disturbed the order for people in Boston and beyond. So we begin today's show by reflecting on what Monday's incident has meant for folks here in the D.C. region, many of whom can vividly recall moments when our own city has been a target of attack. Our reporter, Emily Berman, has been out and about talking with people this week, and she joins us now to share what she's learned. Hi, Emily. Hi. All right. So tell us, what have you been hearing as you've spoken with people in Washington? Well, one of the first places people turn at moments like this is to faith. So I visited Reverend Julia Jarvis, who is the spiritual director of the Interfaith Families Project. It's a religious community for families raising their children to be both Christian and Jewish. It makes me sick. There's anger. There's deep, deep sadness. Jarvis is a runner, and she told me this brought her back to years ago when she ran the Marine Corps Marathon. The little boy that was killed, who was eight, was standing there at the finish line waiting for his dad to cross. What it reminded me of was when my little girls, who were eight, waited for me to run at the end of the finish line at the Marine Corps Marathon, and how I grabbed both of them and we ran to the finish line together. I'm sure that little boy just was so psyched his dad was doing this and had such pride and and such joy. And and then this horrible thing happens. Jarvis says the most important thing is to feel the pain of what happened, but then move on and choose not to feel victimized by it. So you mentioned Jarvis is a runner. Um, I'm guessing an incident like this would hit the running community especially hard. That's what I was hearing. There's an area of Rock Creek Park right near the Woodley Park Metro, and tons of runners pass through there. Just about everyone I spoke to there said it's devastating to see something as prestigious and amazing as the Boston Marathon become associated with terrorism. One of the runners I met is Shen Yi Wu. It's uh, incredibly saddening and, you know, actually makes us want to run more. Kelsey Owen is a long-distance runner and says it wasn't hard to imagine this happening at one of the races she's run. It scares me, but it really gives me a whole new appreciation for the crowd who's out there cheering and for the volunteers who are dedicating their time to help people fulfill their dreams and to do something that they've been wanting to accomplish. Diana Nielsen is another runner I met there. She's training for her first marathon. I signed up for the Chicago Marathon, so you never know, it could have been at any large-scale event, so... The tragedies of Boston kind of made me reevaluate. You know, I'm a little bit nervous now about running. Well, it seems like there was some of that, that nervousness and anxiety around the region this week, especially after those letters that were sent to President Obama and U.S. Senator Roger Wicker, the ones that tested positive for uh, 
the toxin ricin. Did you get a sense of whether people in D.C. are feeling less safe? The sense I got was that people feel like what happened in Boston could have happened anywhere. I don't know that there's a bullseye over D.C. more than any other city. I think that people who want to hurt us will look for any opportunity. Unfortunately, there's crazies everywhere. That was Yoni Zamir, a lawyer in the district. And while, as Zamir said, crazy stuff can happen anywhere, here in Washington, law enforcement agencies have upped their presence all around the city. And what about security at upcoming races here? What's the plan for that? Good question. Washington has more major races than any other city. We're just now beginning race season, which goes from about the end of March through October. And every weekend, there are dozens of organized races. This weekend, the biggest race is the George Washington Parkway 10-miler. The race organizers told me within 45 minutes of the bombings, they were on the phone with the National Park Service and the city of Alexandria to coordinate enhanced security. More police, canine units, that sort of thing. Do you get the sense that um, runners here will hold back from entering races this season as a result of what happened earlier this week? The answer I got to that is no. I asked Lisa Delpy Narati, a professor of sports management at George Washington University. Narati says this reminds her of the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. A bomb exploded in a public area where visitors were gathering. One person was killed and more than 100 people were injured. And this happened the first week of the Games. So many people thought that was going to be the end. Nobody was going to come out. But actually, it had a reverse effect. There's never been an Olympic Games that sold as many tickets as Atlanta. Narati says the bombings will likely raise the profile of the Boston Marathon, which is already known as the Holy Grail of races. I don't know what's higher than the Holy Grail, but that's what she says the Boston race may become. Well, Emily Berman, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Runners have organized public events all over the city for this weekend and next in support of Boston. We have more information all about it on our website, metroconnection.org. So a few months ago on the show, we visited the kinship community of Sandy Spring, just east of Olney in Montgomery County, Maryland. Kinship communities were settled by freed slaves after the Civil War, and you'll find a bunch of their descendants still living in these communities today. Now, today's show is all about law and order. And in the case of Sandy Spring, some residents of this rural area have been tangled up in quite the legal dispute for quite a while. From from here on over... It's my property. I've got two parcels. How long have you had this property? Well, it's been in my family since 1904. This is William P. Rounds. I'll be 72 years old, August 16th. And since 2006, he and his neighbors have been in litigation against the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission. Under dispute is this very property we're walking on. And why? It doesn't have an address. So you just don't have an address? Had one. <laughs> it's gone now. I, I have no idea why they would give me an address and then take it away. Okay, just to back up a bit, as Michael Sclair, an attorney representing William Rounds, tells it, the whole Sandy Spring kerfuffle began back in the 1990s. In the mid-90s, some developments were created nearby. And during the time of the development, the surveys wiped out the main 
road that accessed these properties. There was a road called Farm Road that these folks used to get to and from town. But now the county was saying Farm Road didn't exist. And if your property isn't on what the county deems a public road, then you can't have an address. And if Rounds and his neighbors don't have addresses? They can't build on the land. They can't get services. They can't get emergency services. They can't do anything with the property that they're paying taxes on. Can they sell it? Obviously, the property is not worth much. If you can't build on it, it's hard to sell it. But when these residents approached the Park and Planning Commission, which oversees property in the county... They were denied addresses because the road no longer existed. So, okay, to be honest, when I visited William Round's property, we definitely walked on a road. I mean, it was kind of a challenge since it was covered with fallen trees and leaves and rocks and stuff like that. But there was a road. And if you look at the original property deeds of Rounds and his neighbors, you will see a farm road listed. But if you ask a lawyer on the other side of this dispute... My name is Adrian Gardner. I'm the general counsel of the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission. He'll tell you those original property deeds simply aren't sufficient. Ancient deeds make reference to property descriptions in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's to a rock. Sometimes it's to an apple tree. In other words, says Gardner, these references describe where property lines are supposed to exist. But that doesn't establish who actually is entitled to use a right-of-way. Meaning who can access a route, be it a path or a track or a road. Because the reality is, it is just not legally clear how all of these individuals have access to a public road. The case has bounced around a lot through the years. Now it's pending before Maryland's Court of Special Appeals. And one of William Round's neighbors is especially eager to see the litigation draw to a close. What is your name? My name is Robert Awkward. How old are you? Nanny. When I met Robert Awkward, he walked slowly, talked slowly, and was breathing with help from an oxygen tank. So how long has your family been using the farm road? Ever since I was small. I was two years old when I went around there with my grandmother and grandfather. And that road, he says, is the only right-of-way his family had. We would ride back and forth out the road to a Sand Spring Mill, the mill to grind feed and all of that. So uh, I know the road has been there. So no wonder he feels so strongly about getting park and planning to acknowledge Farm Road. Not only has the land there been an important part of his life... but. You pay taxes on it, and uh, you don't have no say about it. You can't do what you want with it, and it don't make sense. Not long after I chatted with Robert Ockard, I was told his health took a turn for the worse, and he wound up in the hospital. But when we met, in spite of his physical frailty, he really did seem hopeful. I know I, I probably don't want to live to see it, but I hope somewhere along the line it'll be straight night. And when I followed up with attorney Adrian Gardner earlier this week, he said he hopes that the line Awkward mentioned won't be too long. Our commission, the Park and Planning Commission, we're very sincere about the fact of trying to see if we can get through the details that would resolve this without further litigation. Standing on his property in Sandy Spring, William Round says he believes resolving the dispute shouldn't be all that complicated. All they got to do is give us what we deserve and what we have paid for all these years, over 100 years. I got to accept what was on my paperwork, not someone else's. But I will accept my own. 
It was written in 1904. And 109 years later, Round says he isn't giving up anytime soon, because for him, his land is his legacy, address or no address. Time for a break, but when we get back, why people with autism are more likely to come in contact with law enforcement. I've been starting the, my presentations with uh, ask a show of hands of how many people have dealt with somebody with autism before. Nowadays, it's usually at least 25% of the audience. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. On today's Law and Order show, we now move to the people in charge of making the laws in Annapolis and Richmond. The legislative sessions for Maryland and Virginia have come and gone, and lawmakers in both states made some significant changes when it comes to environmental policy. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson joins us now to sort it all out. Hi there, Jonathan. Hi, Rebecca. All right, so um, where should we begin? Well, I thought we should go from north to south. Let's start with something in Maryland that made both the governor and environmental groups pretty happy. After three years of debate, the governor finally pushed an offshore wind bill through the legislature. This bill means that an extra dollar fifty each month on residents' electric bills would subsidize a company investing in offshore wind. But I will say that it is hydraulic fracturing or fracking that still is getting the most attention in Maryland. And that debate is still ongoing. And can you remind us again how how fracking works? Fracking is the drilling technique of pumping chemicals and grit deep underground into shale rock to extract natural gas. Now, opponents say that this could end up polluting groundwater with some of those dangerous chemicals or some of the natural gas itself. Now, Mike Tidwell, he's with the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, or CCAN, he says a statutory ban in Maryland on fracking is the right move. This is a chance with fracking. There's been no fracking in Maryland. This is a chance for us to, to get it right perhaps to decide we don't want it ever at all, but to do our level best to make sure that we don't find ourselves five or ten years from now cleaning up a mess that we could have prevented. But from what I understand, Tidwell and others on his side of the argument, they didn't get what they wanted this year, did they? That's right. Their legislation died in Senate committee by a six to five vote. Now, some environmentalists claim that momentum is still on their side, and next year they're determined to get this ban. I talked with Drew Cobbs. He's the executive director of the Maryland Petroleum Council. He says the governor's commission on Marcellus Shale drilling is still doing its work, and he thinks opponents will have to wait until the commission delivers its final report. That's not due till towards the end of next year. Here's what he had to say. I don't understand what they're scared of. You know, if they feel there's sufficient evidence and uh, information on their side, then present it to the commission on that. So I think they're worried about the outcome in the sense because I don't know if the facts really support their, their arguments. 
Okay, so let's move to Virginia now. What happened in Richmond when it comes to environmental issues this year? Well, Virginia is a bit of a different story. Now, you could say that environmentalists were generally pleased with Maryland legislators this year, but Virginia legislators, not so much. One contentious issue is the incentive system set up to encourage utility companies to invest in renewable energy projects. What happened there? Well, let's go back a little bit. In 2007, Virginia re-regulated its energy utilities and created renewable energy standards. After five years, there was this automatic re-examination of whether the standards and incentives were working. And the attorney general delivered a report in November of last year that basically said, no, these incentives were not working and they weren't making companies invest more in renewable energy. Here's Mike Tidwell talking about what happened next. There was an effort by the environmental community to repair to fix this loophole. And instead of fixing the loophole so that the standard actually incentivized the original intent of wind and solar, the General Assembly just repealed it completely. So is Virginia simply not interested in providing incentives for renewable energy, or is there some other explanation? Well, as you might imagine, it's a little more complicated. If you talk with Dominion Power, they're the largest utility in Virginia, this change in policy is the right move. They say the reasons, again, are pretty complicated, but they say that before Dominion invests in new projects, they have to go before something called the State Corporation Commission and prove that a new project is in the public interest. They argue that these incentives could end up stopping them from investing in a new renewable energy project because the incentives allow them to collect more money from ratepayers. So, for instance, if they're proposing a new solar facility, they go before the State Corporation Commission and say, well, we've got to raise rates to pay for the solar facility. The State Corporation Commission will say, you know, that's not in the best interest of Virginians, and that would actually kill the project. Dominion Public Policy Director Bill Murray also points out that the incentives are still in place for a few things, and most importantly, the most costly renewable energy projects, nuclear and offshore winds. From our standpoint, the bill very much preserved our ability to invest in renewable projects in a way that makes sense for our customers and kept an incentive uh, for the place where it uh, is most needed, and that's uh, for offshore wind. All right, looking ahead then, what do you see, Jonathan, as being the points of contention heading into next year? Well, you certainly can't forget about that hybrid car tax that passed as part of the governor's giant transportation bill. Environmentalists were very angry about a $64 a year tax for owners of hybrid cars in order to help the state pay for road maintenance. That hybrid car tax, environmentalists say that's punitive against people who are trying to help the environment. So in Virginia, that could be the biggest environmental policy fight of next year. And we will stay tuned to see how that all pans out. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan. You're welcome. Jonathan Wilson is WAMU's environment reporter. We'd like to know which environmental issues you see on the horizon. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We turn now from making laws to enforcing them. It turns out that people with developmental disabilities like autism or Down syndrome are much more likely to come into contact with law enforcement than the rest of us are. And those interactions can sometimes have tragic results. Earlier this year, a young man with Down syndrome died in Frederick, Maryland, when sheriff's deputies tried to remove him from a movie theater. 
There's been an outcry surrounding that case, including calls for better training for first responders so they can safely interact with people who have developmental disabilities. Jacob Fenston caught up with a man who's spent the past eight years doing just that sort of training. I'm uh, Scott Campbell. Uh, we have a 15-year-old son with autism. Ian, turn off the TV. Ian. Scott Campbell's son, Ian, is sitting in his room after school. He's watching videos and twirling string. In his 15 years, Ian has never spoken a word. Can we fly? There we go. That's about it. Scott Campbell is president of the Autism Society of Northern Virginia. And since 2005, he's held more than 200 training sessions for law enforcement, firefighters and first responders, as well as parents. He says people with autism and other developmental disabilities are more likely to come into contact with police because of behaviors particular to their disorders. Unfortunately, some of the physical manifestations of autism, such as waving hands, flicking fingers, some of the, the body things that some of the kids do, not all, also uh, are similar to folks who are on meth or PCP. So one of the assumptions is, oh, that kid's on drugs, or, and we have to be fearful of them or something like that. So the chance of them being involved with law enforcement is seven times greater than the general population. In essence, it's not if you're going to be have a contact with law enforcement. You will. It's just it's going to happen because they don't behave like everybody else does. They do things on occasion that stand out and draw attention to themselves. I mean, by the time we were uh, our son was five, we'd had three run-ins with law enforcement ourselves, all of which turned out well. But uh, it's just the chance of something not going right or being misunderstood is very high. What do you tell law enforcement officials um, about interacting with people with autism? What are some of the specifics that, you know, they need to be aware of to make these interactions safe? Well, uh, number one, get as much information as you can about the individual. Uh, How do they communicate? Because uh, about half of the children with autism, including our son, are nonverbal. They don't talk at all. Our son's never said a word in his life. But he uses an iPad to communicate. So find out how they communicate so you can fix the communication piece. For many children, not all, but, you know, for many of them, sensory overload is an enormous thing. For our son, it's, it's noises. He regularly walks around with his fingers in his ears, or he wears a headphone these days, just to cut down on the noise. So try to get them someplace quiet, get them away from the crowds. And some of the ways that a uh, law enforcement official might typically handle someone could actually exacerbate a, a situation, you know, in terms of trying to restrain them or, or that sort of thing. One of the issues with individuals with autism and folks with other developmental disabilities is a problem with positional asphyxia, where if they're held on their stomach, and typically if, say, if you're tasered, the current training by law enforcement for law enforcement is you're handcuffed and your hands are held behind you and you're on your belly. If they're held in that position for too long, Some individuals have underdeveloped trunk muscles and simply can't breathe. That was a case for the young man with Down syndrome up in Maryland. Um, Police usually will hold them in a position until the individuals stop resisting. The problem with uh, folks with autism is they simply may not be able to understand because of, again, due to sensory issues, what's going on. And they may continue to resist simply because they don't understand what's going on around them. And by the time they stop resisting, unfortunately, it may be because they've either passed out or in some cases have died. 
um, being held in a position. And uh, just and if rolling them on their side is all that's necessary to allow them to breathe normally. So when I talk to parents, I'm like, okay, if your child is tasered or if they're detained and if they're held in a position on their belly, simply nicely ask the officer to please roll them on their side so they can breathe normally if that's a problem. Have you had, uh, when you've done trainings with law enforcement, have you had particular questions come up that, you know, maybe an officer has dealt with? Are are there concerns that that arise sort of uh, frequently? Yeah, your questions always come up. Uh, Lately, I've been starting my presentations with uh, ask a show of hands of how many people have dealt with somebody with autism before. And when I started this in 2005, it was a couple of hands out of 30 or 40 officers. Nowadays, it's usually at least 25% of the audience. So there's more and more interactions. And the problem is with autism, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. It's very, they're each very unique. That's the hard part when I do classes for law enforcement is there isn't really a good cookbook answer of, okay, it's autism, what do you do? You know, it's very individual, which is why I always stress, get uh, information from caregivers, from parents, bystanders, find out, you know, what you think might work. That was Scott Campbell, president of the Autism Society of Northern Virginia, speaking with WAMU's Jacob Fenston. So for this next story, we're going to step away from our law and order for just a bit and take a look at education as we bring you the second part in our new series, Yesterday's Dropouts. Last week, we met two adults struggling to learn basic reading and math. This time around, we'll focus on something that's been called America's largest high school. But it's not a building. It's not even a place, really. It's the General Educational Development Certificate, more commonly known as the GED. The GED accounts for 12% of all high school credentials given out in the United States. And adults who dropped out years ago tend to see the GED as the first step to a better-paying job. But as special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza tells us, a growing body of research suggests the GED certificate may not give people a true second chance. That's a sailboat. I'm proud of that, too. Dallas Jones is showing off some of his artwork at the Armed Forces Retirement Home in Northwest D.C. He's 90 years old. All his designs have nautical themes, blue backgrounds with sailboats and fish. I spent 20 years in the Navy. It's not sad. <laughs> in 1938, Jones dropped out of school. He was 15 and had to help support his family. Two years later, he joined the Navy and was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. After a few years of service, Jones decided to take the GED test and passed. It's important, especially if you're down at the bottom. You've got to have an education. And the GED filled the gap. The GED test was started in 1942 for military veterans whose education was interrupted by World War II. It allowed thousands of service members, including Jones, to get a credential they could use to go on to college. It's an accomplishment. I was glad to get the GED, which is equivalent. It definitely is not an equivalent. It's not even close in terms of equivalence to a traditional high school diploma graduate. That's Janice Lawrence, a professor at Temple University. In the 1980s, the Pentagon asked her to research whether there were different outcomes for military recruits during their active duty years, depending on whether they had a high school diploma or a GED certificate. It is incredibly consistent from year to year, decade to decade. 
Lauren says on average, 24% of military recruits with a high school diploma leave before completing a three-year term of enlistment. The corresponding rate for GEDs is about 45%. So almost half of them do not complete a term of enlistment. Each new recruit who drops out of the military early means tens of thousands of dollars in wasted training. Now GED certificate holders are considered second-tier candidates. Lauren says they're hired sparingly. But it isn't just the military that's documented differences in outcomes between people with high school diplomas and those with GED certificates. Tim Kautz with the University of Chicago is working with Nobel laureate James Heckman on a book about the GED test. Kaut says people with the GED credential do worse in a number of areas compared to high school graduates. They have lower earnings, they have lower employment rates, higher divorce rates, and also lower levels of health. The GED test is often billed as a gateway to higher education. Not so, he says. We find that about 40% of GED recipients try some form of post-secondary education, but about half of them drop out within the first year, and within six years, only 1% earn a BA degree. Counts argues that including GED certificates in the national graduation rate hides inequalities. So if you count GED recipients as high school graduates, the black-white gap in high school graduation rates has closed substantially. If you don't, there's been no progress in the last 40 years. Researchers believe the GED certificate misses qualities known as soft skills. High school is not just about academics. Students learn how to be persistent and disciplined, as well as how to work in a team, follow rules, and show up on time. Researchers believe when the GED test was introduced in the 40s, it was very helpful for veterans. Janice Lawrence says that's because they took the GED after they served in the military. After they got all of that teamwork, after they had matured, after they had had considerable experiences. The problem, she says, is when the test was applied to a different population, it was no longer as useful. After 20 years in the military, Dallas Jones, the veteran who served during Pearl Harbor, worked for a defense contractor. He says he's had a blessed life. But even though he credits the GED test with helping him a lot, he made sure his children completed school the traditional way with this advice. Don't drop out. Don't do it. There's nothing like the real high school diploma. C.T. Turner with the GED testing service challenges criticism of the exam. There's a lot of economists look at this and they punch some holes and they say, well, you know, maybe someone who earns a GED credential doesn't earn much more than someone who drops out or much more than a high school credential holder. But this is not important. He says the GED test is a critical pathway, and without it, the approximately 30 million adults who don't have a high school credential couldn't even apply for most jobs or go on to higher education. Turner is right. The GED test has become a ticket to some federal job training programs, college grants, and even for prisoners, a chance to get out of jail a little sooner. It's given many undocumented immigrants a better shot at staying in the U.S., Thanks to these government incentives, the number of people taking the test has soared. Hello. How are you? Hi. (laughs) Kiana Rucker is 35 years old and attends classes at Southeast Ministries, an adult education centre in D.C. She's just passed the GED test and has brought in flowers for her math teacher. He wanted to kill me. <laughs> Why would you say that? Rucker dropped out of school in the 10th grade and relies mostly on a combination of food stamps, medical assistance, and subsidized housing to get by. She struggled in class for more than three years. 
I had to take the math five times before I passed it. When she finally got a call saying she'd passed... The first thing I said was, are you sure you had the right person? <laughs> Her teacher, Paul Ruffin, says his average student comes in at the sixth grade level in reading, third grade in math. They need to get to the ninth grade level to start preparing for the GED test. Ruffin says many of his students find it difficult to stick with class because of job schedules, uncertain childcare, and bad memories of what he calls educational humiliation. Many people here have undiagnosed learning disabilities. And we say some people dropped out, but in truth, many people escaped. Those who persevere may do so because they've learned some of the soft skills along the way. Kiana Rucker was the only one in her class of 15 who stayed and passed. She says she's looking forward to the rest of her life. So many things that I can do now. It's like so many options to go to college, to get into a trade, just the job period, because that's the first thing they ask. Do you have a high school diploma or GED? Now I can feel good to say, yes, I do have it. And even if the GED test isn't that ticket to success, Rucker is determined to defy the obstacles that have defeated so many others like her. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Next week, we'll hear how 2014 will bring an overhaul of the GED test and why many advocates for adult learners worry about the changes. So stay tuned. Up next, how law students are finding their voices, and sometimes their vocations, on stage. I think if you asked most of them, the answer you would hear was, I had to do this, because this is what kept me sane. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are all about law and order. We're going to kick off this part of the show with the people who study and practice law. People you can find in droves here in Washington, since we boast the densest concentration of them in the country. We're talking, of course, about lawyers. But before you can stamp that fancy pants title of Esquire after your name, you have to go to law school, right? And D.C. has a bundle of law schools, one of which we're going to visit right now. Thing is, though, we're not going to visit a lecture hall or a moot courtroom. No, we're going to visit... My name is Jack Marshall, and this is your 40th anniversary production. A stage. Please turn off your cell phones. These are Victorian times. They won't do you any good. This, as you've heard, is law professor Jack Marshall on stage at Georgetown University Law Center's Hart Auditorium. This past weekend, the Georgetown Gilbert and Sullivan Society presented its 40th anniversary production of Trial by Jury. When my good friends was called to the bar and an appetite fresh and hearty, but I was as many young barristers are an impecunious party. I'd have sworn a tailcoat of a beautiful blue, a brief which I bought of a boobie. A couple of shirts and a collar or two and a ring that looked like a ruby. It was the same politically satirical operetta that launched the Georgetown Gilbert and Sullivan Society back in 1973, thanks to a certain first-year student by the name of Jack Marshall. Early on, I was sitting in the, what was then the moot courtroom. Now it's called the Hart Auditorium. 
and was looking at it, and it had an installed judge's bench and a jury box. And I was just sitting and saying, boy, this is a set for trial by jury. What a great thing to do trial by jury. Marshall convinced a beloved professor to play the judge. He got his roommates to produce, and he took on the role of director. And on opening night of the two-show run, he says? We were hoping to get maybe, you know, the friends of the cast. And uh, about 600 people showed up. They had never had more than 200 in the moot courtroom. It was a complete mob scene. The same thing happened at the second performance. And next thing you know, the Georgetown Gilbert and Sullivan Society was born. Its motto has always been America's only theater company with its own law school. Pretty appropriate, actually, given that W.S. Gilbert was himself a lawyer. But that designation also sets Georgetown's Gilbert and Sullivan Society apart from the many other Gilbert and Sullivan societies at other colleges and universities, like Harvard, MIT, Yale. I was a member of the Barnard Gilbert and Sullivan Society as an undergrad, and I will say it influenced my choice of where to go to law school. Hence, Maddie Cohn's decision to attend Georgetown in 1985. I actually knew there was a Gilbert and Sullivan Society at Georgetown. So the first day I was here, there was a little, like, student organization bazaar going on with different tables. And I walked up to them and I said, I'm yours, take me. And that was the start of a lifelong relationship. (laughs) And that's the thing about the Georgetown Gilbert and Sullivan Society. Through its 40 years, many things have changed, like how it went from producing just one operetta a year to an operetta, a Broadway-style musical, and a play. But what hasn't changed, Maddie Cohn says, is the desire of its alumni to remain involved as supporters, performers, and networking resources. Georgetown is a big impersonal place in many ways. And this was a very, very personal experience to take away and to remain in that connection of community. I think that this is a very large, weird, sometimes dysfunctional family, but it's a really important one in a profession that can be isolating and very cutthroat. Not to say that being involved with the society isn't hard work. It means learning lines, building sets, and attending rehearsals, all while juggling a heavy course load. And this guy knows that feeling well. Uh, My name is Robert Plantold. I am a third-year law student at Georgetown University Law Center. He also just wrapped up his term as the Gilbert and Sullivan Society's president. And according to Plantold, it is possible to strike a balance. Law students do have free time, but it's usually not structured. And basically being in a student group like this theater group forces you to structure your time. Have you had any struggles with that? Sure. Uh, I've, I've had to ask for extensions a couple of times, but we're very much about helping each other out to ensure that we don't fail as law students just so we can succeed as a theater group. Or vice versa. Right, right. <laughs> because the way Maddie Cohn sees it, law school can be one of two things. For some people... Law school can be three years of their life. But for others, like, say, the folks in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society... Law school is something that happens during three years of your life. And, says Jack Marshall, once those three years are done, who knows where life may take you. There's a, a wonderful Hollywood actor you'll see on TV named Bobby Gant, known as Bobby Gonzalez when he was here. And he uh, graduated, moved to California, and I don't think he lasted more than a few months as a lawyer. And he's been a, uh, you know, a full-time actor ever since. Not that Bobby's Georgetown law skills haven't come in handy. His latest television appearance was on NCIS, the popular crime drama, earlier this year. For now I'm a judge. I'm a judge too. Yes, now I'm a judge. I'm a judge too. You say my law is fun. And my job, 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 and my job,
our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Poolsville, Maryland, and the Lamond Riggs neighborhood of Northeast D.C. Eddie Coleman, 62, live in Poolsville, Maryland. Poolsville is northwest Montgomery County. We're about uh, 18 miles northwest of Rockville and six miles across the Potomac River to Leesburg, Virginia. My family and I have lived here for 30, about 31 years. Now, Poolsville is a, a small town that uh, resembles Mayberry from the Andy Griffith Show. It's a community of about 5,100 people in the middle of Montgomery County's 93,000-acre ag reserve. Uh, It's a very caring community, close. You know most everybody, and it takes you a good while to go to the store because you bump into people you know and you end up talking. Every September, the main street in town is closed down for the day, and we have Poolsville Day. I believe this coming September will be the 21st one. And it's a great day. It's from one end of the town to almost the other end of the town, lined up with the kids, the church group. It's probably attended by fifteen to 20,000 people. It's just a wonderful day, and it's grown every, every year. My name is Caesar Dudley. We are in Lamont Riggs. I've lived here since 1959. We are bordered by New Hampshire Avenue, North Capitol Street, South Dakota, Eastern Avenue, and all of these streets are main streets that leads to Maryland, the major shopping centers in the outskirts. It's very convenient. Well, we came here when it was a very quiet, undisturbed neighborhood. We didn't have Metro. It was just a livable community. And then Metro changed the whole complexity of this neighborhood, and it's still changing. There are newcomers from there that established themselves in their apartments, condominiums, that we all have adjusted to each other. We don't want to lose this as a neighborhood, as a community. We have people here, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, 60 years. And now those people, are some of them are gone. Or some are old and, and on walkers and whatnot, but they're still active. We keep up with each other. That's what makes it such a great community. We share and care with one another. We get to know each other as neighbors, knock on doors, sit down and drink coffee with each other. And it, it just makes it a good neighborhood to live in. We heard from Eddie Coleman in Poolsville and Caesar Dudley in Lamond Riggs. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We'll wrap up today's show with our monthly series, DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. Today, we're heading to a bar that sits behind an unassuming facade in the heart of Capitol Hill's Barracks Row District. And while Phase One's windowless storefront may not look like much from the outside, as Jared Walker tells us, inside you'll find one of D.C.'s oldest dives. 
Phase One is the oldest lesbian drinking establishment in Washington. In fact, bar manager Angela Lombardi says this dive bar may be the oldest of its kind in the country. It opened in 1970 in this exact location, actually same owners. One of the owners did pass away around five years ago, but the original two gentlemen that owned it have been a part of it the entire time. Who comes here? The beauty of this bar is since we have been open since 1970 is we're kind of all over the place. On any given night, our clientele ranges from a packed house full of 22, 21-year-olds, or, you know, occasionally when we open, we'll get a group of 25, 60, or 70-year-olds that roll in here like one actually had an oxygen tank. That's the versatility and the beauty of this bar is you never know what you're going to get. Bartender Krista Strong says despite that age gap, Phase 1's patrons have unifying tastes and attitudes. Drinks are cheap, people are friendly, it's not too fancy. You're not going to get, like, a nice Cosmo with a twist here, you know. I mean, you will if you order it, but it's just not that place. You come in, you get a PVR and a shot of Jameson, and you're good to go. As the bar begins to fill, I run into Gene Humza, bar manager at the 930 Club. This is actually where I got my start in the industry, so it's home for me. Started at that door, working the door in 1984 or 5, somewhere in there. And now have what a lot of people would consider to be one of the premier jobs in my field. Back then, Humza says Phase One was an important gathering place for a largely isolated lesbian community in D.C. This place survived at times when not only was it impossibly uncool to be gay, but women were targets on top of it. Still are. I'm not denying that. One constant reminder of that era is the front door of the bar. When you enter phase one, you don't really enter phase one. You have to pass through a sort of makeshift anteroom that acts as a barrier between the street and the bar itself. One of the reasons there's that partition there is because people would fling that door open and throw things inside. And milkshakes came in and things more intense than that, bullet holes in the, in the window when you come in the next day. And while many of the patrons and staff haven't forgotten the past, Bar manager Angela Lombardi says it's undeniable that attitudes towards the lesbian community have changed for the better. We're at this beautiful point in 2013 where I, as a lesbian, can go anywhere, certainly anywhere in D.C., with my girlfriend and not feel awkward. Is it difficult to stay relevant in an ever-opening society? I would say yes, but it's a feat for any business to be open for 43 years now, let alone a lesbian bar. I mean, so we're not only competing with lesbian bars or gay bars, I mean, we're competing with straight bars. In this newly competitive market, Lombardi has gotten creative to keep her patrons coming back. We're always on a train to do whatever's new and weird. I mean, we're, you're here for Jello Wrestling tonight, and we've actually been doing that for probably around eight years now. Yes, she said Jello Wrestling. I make my way back to the bar's cooler and meet up with DJ Jay Von Tees, who's been spinning dance songs all night long. But tonight she's pulling double duty as the designated jello maker, and she graciously allows me to sit in on the process. And it's like sand, pretty much it looks like. And once you add, like you have to add like hot and cold water, but once you do it, it turns into little tiny little jelly balls that you can eat if you want to. There's no flavor to them. They don't taste good, but they won't kill you. And how much jello are we talking about here? Um, this one bag is like 25 gallons. And they use two of them, but 50 gallons of jello still won't break a fall. The worst thing about jello wrestling, because I've done it myself, and it's just the next day, because the next day it feels like you wrestle like a polar bear. So you've done this? Yeah. Did you win? No. <laughs>
But it's not all jello at phase one. Angela Lombardi says the most important thing about the bar is its continuing commitment to providing the lesbian community of D.C. with a safe and friendly watering hole it can call its own. It's not about just making money. It's being proud of how you made the money. You know, we will never sell out. We're not trying to imitate or replicate. We're our own thing. And after 43 years, it can safely be said, this dive bar is anything but a phase. I'm Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite dive bar you'd like to suggest for our series? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu-metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Jared Walker, with special help from Naomi Gingold and Kara Nichols. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Our guest producer this week is Rebecca Blatt. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Lauren Landau, Robbie Feinberg, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll rewind a bit and revisit some of our favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few months. We'll climb aboard the Skipjack Catherine, a historic boat that once sailed the Chesapeake, and community members hope we'll hit those waters again soon. We'll visit a Howard University professor who's using green chemistry to improve medicine for people in developing countries. And we'll rock out with a band for whom D.C. isn't just home, it's inspiration. Remembering that space was something else before the target was an idea we were trying to play with in the lyrics of D.C. USA. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.